Hi, I'm Jody Melman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavon. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavon 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Tom Jones, Santana, and Aretha Franklin have graced its stage. Over the past year, we've recorded our podcast in a variety of places, on the Bardavon stage, under the stage, in the lobby, and in the green room. We recorded this particular podcast in my living room, so you might hear some of the domestic noises of our everyday life, a doorbell, the clock chiming, or even the cat scurrying to the window to watch a bird. My living room set the stage for a relaxing and candid discussion with today's special guest, Dr. Jose Francisco Salgado, astronomer, astrophotographer, and filmmaker. Jose is also the executive director of KV265, a nonprofit whose mission is the communication of science through the arts. Jose recently brought his Science and Symphony project, which has been presented to audiences around the world, to the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. In celebration of the 50th moon landing, one of his brilliant films, Moonrise, which features his own photographs, NASA footage, historic and cultural references to the moon, was synchronized to Ravel's Daphne and Chloe. Jose, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. Before we talked about what's going on with the Bardavon, why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your background. So, um, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> endless, endless amounts uh, of time for you. So, I'm um, academically trained as an astronomer, but from an early age, I developed interest in other disciplines like photography and, and music. I've um, been taking pictures since I was in eighth grade. Uh, by third grade, I knew I wanted to become an astronomer. So, when I got my camera in, uh, in eighth grade, the first thing that I did was to point it at the sky and photograph, you know, the stars, the moon, sunrise, sunsets, and all of that. So I um, got a, a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Puerto Rico, uh, was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And then I moved to Michigan, got my, um, my doctoral degree in, in, in astronomy. When were you in Michigan, if I could Yes, if I could uh, from, from 92 to 2000. We were there the same time. Really? Yes, yes. We were. We lived in Dexter, Michigan, uh, in right Dexter. outside of uh, right outside of Ann Arbor. And Dexter, I went visited Dexter because they had the radio telescope there. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, they yes. Had one. You know, the astronomy department had a, a radio telescope in in in, in Dexter. Yes. Funny. Yes. What a small world. So right? I went a couple of a couple of times there. They would have also the the local astronomy club would have star parties in in Dexter. Well, it's it, one of those places out in the Midwest where you really do have endless skies. It's incredible because there are no mountains. Exactly. So it's, so it's just, flat. It's, it's all flat. Yes. And the sky, the, I remember the skies were always great. Yes, yes, yes. So, so I, got, I got my, uh, my degree in, in, in astronomy there, in my PhD. And during the 90s, so uh, some key things happened you know, in my life, which was I discover all these um, digital, you know, software packages to work on graphic design, like Photoshop and mm -hmm. Illustrator. And I quickly saw that as an extension to photography. And, and so this was before digital cameras were, you know, mm -hmm. you know, affordable. So I said, oh, wait, I can 
scan my photographs, right, because we were still working on film, and augment them, combine them with other, you know, digital components, illustration, and so on, and ju just for fun. But then one thing I noticed was that in, in around that time, big buzzwords in education were education and public outreach, and, you know, in, in, in astronomy. So it's like, hey, this is not just about all scientists doing research, but about communicating the research to the public, and including NASA. NASA, uh, you know, it, it was expecting that all major proposals had, uh, a, you know, a small education component, right? Component, Some correct, money yeah. budgeted for, for, for that. And I remember somebody, a couple of people came from NASA to talk about that, and that was like, you know, a eureka moment. It's like, oh, wait a second. Because now I'm developing these mm -hmm. um, interests, you know, uh, going back to photography after perhaps, you know, not shooting uh, much around that time, going back to that, learning about digital, you know, graphic design and so on. And then I can apply that to communicate mm -hmm. science, to create illustrations, uh, develop uh, websites and so on. So by the time of, the, of graduating in 2000, a uh, position opened at the Adler Planetarium mm -hmm. in Chicago. And you know, I visited it and I said, hey, this is a great place to do exactly what I wanna be doing, which is science communication. So I think it was a no-brainer for, for both ends, both at, you know, for the planetarium, for myself. And, and I was one of the few lucky ones who got a job before uh, defending his thesis. So That's I went incredible. straight, yes. <laughs> so I had a job already. A lot of people that stick around waiting for a postdoc position and so on. So, um, so then that in 2000, I started working professionally as a science communicator. And are you still, I was looking at uh, the bio on your website. Are you still in Chicago? Where is your home base? Your yeah, home base I, is in San Francisco? No, in Nashville, actually. Nashville? I moved to oh, Nashville, really? yeah, last year. I worked at the Adler until uh, uh, 2015. And where are you working currently in Nashville? So, so what happened was the following. So this is, you know, I can continue the story. Yeah. Um, so all the graphic work that I was doing was, you know, still, right? Mm -hmm. Still illustrations, photography, and so on. And, and I always thought, well, at some point I'll move into motion graphics, maybe a, a film and so on. And, uh, but I'm one who usually waits for technology to be, to be ripe and for me to get you know, excited about something. So in 2005, that's when you could start editing in high definition. Right. So what happened was that the, the Chicago Sinfonietta, which is one of the uh, you know, local orchestras in, in the city, um, approached us at the Adler with this project they basically asked for a visual component for two concerts of the planets that they were that they were having, and uh, and they asked me because of the common interest, you know, classical music. I've always loved music, so classical music, astronomy, astronomy education, because you're reaching you know reaching the public. So I said, yeah, absolutely, uh, I'll 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 work on this. And so I said, okay, this is going to be my chance to learn, this is gonna be the project where I'm gonna you know, teach myself and by calling a friend who is a great video editor, hey, I wanna do this, how do you do this? Okay, so this, you go down to, go to this menu and so literally I learned while editing the planets, uh, which I believe was the first work that actually we presented here in, in Poughkeepsie. Um, so, uh, so the success of that film, which basically instead of, instead of ending being 
a pretty slideshow of astronomical images. It's a film that closely follows the tone, the character of the music, right? Instead of just something to be projected and has nothing to do with the music, this is quite the opposite. This is, I call it like, you know, it's like, it's like the soundtrack and film relationship, but in reverse, where, you know, the film composer gets the final cut and then he writes music to fit the film. I'm creating films to fit already music. composed music, exactly. No, and some, many of these are classical masterpieces that you're not gonna uh, change in any way. Um, so the success of that project of the planets led to a second production with Sinfonietta and the Planetarium, uh, pictures at an exhibition. And then by the, by the third one, uh, I, that's when I started talking with Ann Barlow, who's here uh, with us uh, this morning, and with uh, a colleague of mine at the Adler Planetarium, uh, Geisa Duke. And we started this nonprofit organization called KV265, which uh, basically is in charge of producing these films, of organizing, you know, talking to the orchestras, and doing all these, organizing all these outreach. But the base of the, uh, you know, of the, the, the basis of all outreach we do, or most of it, is the films. Either presented with orchestras or taking, uh, giving lectures at schools and so on. So since uh, 2015, I've been working for KV265 uh, uh, full time. Now, uh, KV265 is a nonprofit, yes. and it really is an educationally based organization, as you said, that brings the arts and combines that with astronomy. Can you tell me a little bit about which uh, classical works you've, you've uh, composed films for? Okay, so which ones we have co yeah, commissioned. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so, so the first one uh, that we commissioned, so Anne had this... Um, there was a, a children's story written for her when she was young about the Northern Lights. And, you know, she always uh, dreamt of bringing that piece, you know, to the, to, the, to the stage. So what we did is, along with uh, Grand Park Orchestra in Chicago, we approached uh, Chris, Chris Theophanidis, who is one of the, you know, right. best-known, uh, you know, contemporary American composers, and we approached him and we told him about this project where we would have, you know, a narration on stage, you know, telling uh, the, the, the story, visuals, you know, that I would be in charge of, uh, augmenting, you know, uh, accompanying the story, and then we needed music composed to fit the music, uh, to fit the, the story. And um, so Chris, you know, he got on board very, very quickly and, and he wrote the music. And it's, it's a beautiful, um, it's like 21 minutes of m continuous music supporting the story being told. So it's a beautiful interplay between, you know, words, the music and the film on screen. Now, about the film, are they live images? In other words, is it moving images or is it still images? It's, it's, it's always... a combination of the it, two. It's a combination of the two, but when you see stills, most of the time something is happening with the stills. Uh, and, and you'll see this at, at this concert that we're presenting uh, tonight, where I'm animating the images and, you know, I'm bringing them in, in creative ways instead of just like... Just cross the salt between right, one and right. the next one. Like a slideshow, yeah, exactly. exactly. Something, something is always interesting because the, the neat thing um, 
there are so many historical documents and works on paper about you know astronomy and whatever we, it is that we are presented. <clears throat> and remember that not only these themes uh, inspire researchers to study them, but artists to create right. right paintings, works of art based on that on those subjects. So oftentimes we include uh, works of art as well. So all these things are brought in. There's always some motion applied to them. When I was looking at your website, I was able to click on into your Flickr mm -hmm. account and see some of your images. And I mean, I have to tell everybody, first of all, they should go to your website, which is josefranciscosalgado.com to be able to get to those images. And I mean, you've literally been all over the world. I mean, from Antarctica to the Northern Lights, I mean, you've been everywhere. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the images themselves. What made you choose to go to specific places? So it's, you know, uh, different, different dif definitely different reasons. And, and nowadays, I'm lucky enough that most of these places, there is another, another reason for going to that place, mm -hmm. not just me saying like, oh, that's a beautiful place, I want to go there. And that happened recently. Uh, you know, I went to the Faroe Islands just because I thought, you know, it's like, oh, I've seen a lot of pictures on Instagram. Mm -hmm. This looks like a beautiful place. I just want to go just because. Oftentimes, those places that you see on, on Flickr uh, is because I attended an astronomy conference or I went there to do uh, photography for a production, either, you know, back in the day for the Adler Planetarium, nowadays for KB265 Productions, or I've been invited to work with an orchestra, and I said like, oh, I know that that's a great place, you know, to visit for photography, so I might, I might do that as well. So oftentimes, you know, I go to a place and I multitask. It's not just, <laughs> sure, not just, to, take, uh, just to take pictures. What has been your most challenging shoot? Um, let's see. Well, I would say, you know, recently we went to uh, Nova Scotia to photograph the, uh, the uh, most extreme lunar tides and the weather didn't cooperate. So that, <laughs> that, that was, you know, that was challenging because of, um, because of weather. But in terms of like technical aspects and actually also related to weather, I would have to say the South Pole. And the challenge was, the challenge there was uh, of course the the temperature and so not the temperature you know that I felt and by that I mean specifically my hands I need the dexterity right to change you know the exposure you know connect this cable and so you cannot do that with gloves you know you need liners and so I would just keep my liners try to you know work as 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 uh, quickly as possible, but it was minus 40, minus 60 with the wind. What time of year were you there? I, I, in November. So it was a beautiful spring day. Right, right. Yeah, it was spring. So blue skies and absolutely beautiful. And then the cameras would work for 15, 20 minutes, you know, and I have to admit that even probably I, my sense of, you know, time was distorted because I think it was 15 or 20 minutes, but God only knows right, because, it, because it's <laughs> yeah. so cold, right? right. That it maybe felt a little longer. And I'm surprised that the equipment worked, that it didn't freeze you, up. You know what? And people have asked me about that because, you know, of course, if you read the, they want to be conservative, you know, camera manufacturers, and they'll say, oh, they work, you know, uh, above zero. So no, they, they work. One of them made on the shutter 
made an awful noise, and it was just it was frozen. The metal was frozen, wow. and it was like, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna leave it like that. I'm gonna take it inside the, the you know the observatory, and then it was fine. I was taking 3D um, pictures, and for that you need two cameras connected by a cable. One time, I forgot to connect the cables inside. So it's just, you know, it's just dangling. I go outside, what happens? It was, it was frozen. And if you try to move it, you're gonna snap it. Right. So I'm like, okay, this is what I'll do. Because <laughs> it's a, it's a, it was a heavy rig. You know, two big cameras with two big lenses and the tripod and, you know, the bar in between them. So I'm, I'm going to the, the inside, you know, the building and I'll let it warm. And then I'll just come out very quickly and just, you know, no, <laughs> they would freeze instantly. So I had to take the whole rig. I'm like, oh, what a drag. Bring, you know, go up some steps and then attach it and then go outside. And, and yes, the, camera the cameras would work for what I think it's about maybe 15 minutes and then I would have to bring them in. So definitely, yeah, that was, that, that was the most challenging. Sometimes weather doesn't cooperate, but it, that was the most challenging. With Antarctica, I mean, actually with any photograph, it's a matter of light. We all, as, as anybody who holds right. a camera, you know light is the most important thing. When you're in Antarctica, how many hours of light were there and did the fact that you are having these technical problems affect your ability to do your shoot? So 24 hours of daytime. Oh, okay. okay? 24 hours of daytime. So I went to photograph a radio telescope that uh, one, one of its... Uh, uh, partners is the University of Chicago. So the University of Chicago was the one who, the institution that asked me to go with, and it has to go through, you know, you have to get a, approval from the National Science Foundation. So it, it, it's, it's very, very, very strict. You know, it's not just, you know, not anybody. If you're going there, especially South Pole, it's, it's for a reason. Right. And I... Uh, not going for vacation. Yes, and medical, you know, checkups, everything. Really? Uh, had a wisdom tooth removed <laughs> if I wanted to go to Antarctica because it was impacted. And it wasn't a problem for me at that point. That's what they're trying to avoid, that it becomes right. a problem there. Right. So it's like, okay, so yeah, yeah. you, you want to go to Antarctica, <laughs> you have to get... So now, less, less wise. <laughs> so... so um, so yeah, 24 hours of, uh, of daytime, which for me, gave me a great uh, opportunity to photograph how the sun moves in the sky by taking time-lapse uh, sequences and then combining all those pictures. And you can see on, you know, on Flickr where the sun is moving and the south coast is moving sideways. So, oh, that's incredible. Yes, yeah, it's very interesting. So you, you'll have, imagine 3 a.m., the sun is in one direction, 3 p.m., is in the sky, but 180 degrees. So for nine days, I didn't see the, the night sky. You know, the sun was constantly all the time. You probably didn't sleep. Well, you know, they have, they have you know, good the, shutters. The, right, yeah, they have, right. they have good shutters. But, and, your, but and, your clock is off because first of all, you know, you're, you're on a normal time and then you go down there and you have no sense of time. Yes. And, and I would that, imagine. And in that there, case, but. what they do is they keep time with uh, New Zealand because you go through New Zealand, mm -hmm. uh, you go to Christchurch first and then you get your, you know, winter, your polar gear. And then you go to McMurdo Station. Uh, New Zealand also has a, a 
uh, a base there, an Air Force base. So you're in New Zealand time, which you know already is you know so many hours away from from, from our <laughs> local time, from our time. So yes, so but yeah, I, I it would in, in terms of I, I would say the 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 temperature was the. Uh, the the the, 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 the the shock, you know, the shock. When I remember when I stepped out of the plane, you know, it's like one of those Hercules planes that they have like skis and they just, you know, land on the, on, on the snow. And there's nothing. It's basically a South Pole is two miles of packed, you know, ice and, and, and snow over the, over the continent. So it's really high. The altitude is really high, but it's not because of mountains. It's because of all this ice, almost two miles above the, uh, the, the ground, mm. and there's absolutely nothing. It's just white. The only thing that you see is the, uh, the human structures built, you know, the telescopes, the, the station. It's, yeah, it's, it's the most, you know, like foreign and bizarre desolate and desolate place that I have visited, yes. And some of the pictures that you have on your website, um, it seems like you've traveled the world to take pictures of observatories. Yes. And some of the shots I've seen of the observatory almost look like you're in a plane because it's it's like over the observatory into the Alps or you know into what the it could be. I know it, it it probably could be you know many of these observatories they have different domes, different telescopes. So that most likely was I was at one of the high points, and I'm from that. Point I have a, a, a beautiful view of the rest of, of the telescopes, and yes, yeah, so I've done that in you know Kid Peak in in Arizona, uh, uh, Peak du Midi, you know the French Alps, mm -hmm. beautiful beautiful places. So and Mauna, Mauna, Mauna Kea, Kea. Yeah, yeah, Mauna Kea, exactly. So Mauna Kea, you have you know the other telescopes. I've been there. You've been there. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. And so what do you want to do? Of course, you want to be you know above the clouds. When you see the clouds below you. It makes so much sense that oh, that's why we're here. Right. You know, the, 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 you are above the clouds, and of course, the less atmosphere you have above you, the 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 clearer and the neater the the, the images and the data will be that you collect. You know, it's it's interesting. I think one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had was I was in Zermatt and I took the uh, uh, travel uh, one of those little uh, cable cars, cable cars uh -huh. up to the observatory outside of Zermatt and just being able to stand outside the observatory and and survey the the mountaintops. It was just the snow-covered peaks. It was in, it was in February when I was there, and to me, it really struck home the beauty of this planet. And this is something that you get to see all the time in your travels. What has been the most beautiful spot that really stays in your mind? Or are they all just so beautiful you couldn't pick one? Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to, but I think that uh, for me, the definite answer when it comes to what is the place with the most beautiful and impressive night sky is the Atacama Desert in Northern Chile, by far. You know, that place is, and, and the interesting thing is that you actually, you're not in, you know, it's not pitch black. You get starlight. So you actually can see and your eyes get adapted. And it's because, you know, it's, it's because of all this, the starlight that you're, you're getting, which is actually a combination of uh, starlight itself and also dust particles in the, uh, in the solar system. They also reflect uh, light back to, back to Earth. So it's not, you know, uh, uh, pitch black but it's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. The Milky Way is just glorious. And then from that latitude, you can get to see the center of the galaxy of the Milky Way right above you. So 
Yeah. That's an incredible sight. Yes, yes. And in terms and then in terms of nature, you know, there's so many beautiful places, but you know, definitely New Zealand is one. Um, you know, Iceland, Faroe Islands was also, you know, beautiful. There's so many so many places. Like you said, it, it's very hard and it's a different beauty, right? right. It, it's different right. beauty. It depends on what what you like, but you know, it's amazing. You mentioned that you did that uh, the program about the Northern Lights. Where was the best spot to see the Northern Lights? Yellow and where did you get the, you get the best photograph? And the, the place that I now I visit twice a year uh, uh, because now I'm leading tours. That tells you how much oh, I like it. Oh, wow. So, so Yellowknife, Yellowknife is in Northwest Territory. Sign me up. Yeah, Yellowknife <laughs> is in the Northwest Territories of Canada. And, uh, and so the Canadian Space Agency has a program where they monitor the lights from the ground. So they have, they have cameras there photographing every, every, every night. And that's what uh, made us go to, uh, to Yellowknife. And although I've seen the lights from, you know, Anchorage, Fairbanks, uh, Iceland, when I say Yellowknife, of course, I can talk from my personal experience, but when it comes to con Comparing it to other places, this is based on people that I have asked who have been to other places and, and come to Yellowknife. And I have, to, I have asked them, okay, you have been to more places than me when it comes to the Northern Lights. What's your favorite place? And they say, you know, Yellowknife. Geographically speaking, it's in a very favorable position. You are under what's called the Aurora Oval, uh, which is this oval around the magnetic uh, pole, magnetic North Pole in the case of the Northern Hemisphere. And that's where you see the lights, uh, the lights from, at least you know, that's where you see them overhead if you're under that oval. So in Yellowknife, it's dead center in that oval. That means that you can see the Northern Lights in all directions. Uh, you can see them. I, and I have fisheye uh, uh, photographs, right? Yeah. I'm sure you saw yes. some of Flickr. Where there are, the entire sky is absolutely uh, covered. So we worked on that Theophanidis uh, piece um, that Chris wrote about, and then we worked with another composer, another uh, contemporary composer. His name is John Estacio from, from Canada. By the way, Hudson Valley, they presented Borealis. That was the second time that we collaborated a piece that he wrote. So he wrote this music inspired by the sun and the northern lights, and because there's a connection between the two of them, right? Uh, we made this film using his, the music that he had already composed uh, some, some time ago. And then Boston Pops commissioned from us a third piece about the Northern Lights using uh, Respighi's Adoration, Adoration of the Magi for, for a Christmas series of concerts a couple of years ago. So, so and since I had continued going to, to Yellowknife, I had all this you know, footage that was still unused, so we were able to uh, to, to work on that third production. But at that point, I said, well, what now? Because I'm running out of excuses to come to Yellowknife. <laughs> I've been going to Yellowknife every year. So I, by then I had learned so much about the place. And I said, you know what? This is, and this, it's all about communicating science. So what I should do is I start you know, bringing people to Yellowknife to see the lights. And it's not just to see them, it's to learn about them because then I can give them a lecture about the, you know, the physics behind the lights. Those with cameras, I can teach them how to photograph them. So now I'm going every March and every September. Oh, that's great. I always thought that 
Iceland was the place to go to see the lights, but I guess I guess not, huh? You know what? If you ask me, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. No, you Canada. go. This go is, to Canada. This is, this is this is the way. The, because I've been to Iceland twice. Yeah. You go to Iceland for the landscapes. I mean, the landscapes are absolutely beautiful. And if you get to see the lights, good for you. It's a bonus. Right. But don't go there specifically for the lights. Uh, in, in Yellowknife, they're, they're... You go there for the lights. They're more, more impressive. Yeah. And, and, and again, if, uh, maybe four weeks ago, I asked a friend of mine, an operator, who is now leading tours on both uh, countries, and he had just returned from Iceland. He said, well, now that you have been going to Iceland for about three years now leading tours, you know, how, how are the lights? And he said, they're not as impressive as in, as in, as in Yellowknife. Yeah, they're beautiful, and the landscape is beautiful, but in Yellowknife, you know, yeah, that's a place. And then for us, it's fairly straightforward to, to go there. But yeah. most people think faraway places. They think Iceland, Norway, even right. Alaska, but not, you know, you just go, you know, uh, just north. head north. You head north, yeah, <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit more about your science and symphony program, yes. because that's really what you're here in Poughkeepsie exactly. for. Exactly, yes. And let's talk about the moon. Yes. Moonrise. Right. That's what's going to be presented with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic tonight. Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that program? So after, you know, pictures at an exhibition, uh, after that uh, film, I was actually having conversations with people at, at, at NASA, and I was doing some education for them, and, and they, they actually suggested the moon. Hey, what about if you make a film about the moon? Because yeah, we have this, you know, institute that is, you know, um, orga- this institute within, the, within NASA that it's the, the umbrella for many of the uh, research components and missions and so on. It's like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be, that would be fantastic. And then, and then Anne um, suggested, hey, you know, Daphne and Chloe is a beautiful music. Take, take a look. Uh, to have a have a listen, and and what I do is, I listen to the music and I, I try to imagine the visuals. I by then I have I know which visuals I'll use. You know I'll have a general idea, and I try to see. Okay, do I think uh, it is very very subjective? Do I think that they are a good match? So I listen to it. It's like oh yeah, this is beautiful. And you want music also that sounds cinematic, right? That it really it sounds you know, grand and, and beautiful. So we decided to use the two suites. Um, so that's six movements, three and three, about 26 uh, minutes long. And then what I did is- That's Ravel. Yeah, by Ravel, yes, thank you, by, by Maurice Ravel. And, and then what I did was, I was actually in between the using the whole the music for the, the for the ballet, the complete uh, uh, ballet music, which is like fifty something, and I said, well, one way or another, because this is you get all these um, discrete movements, right? It's not that they're necessarily, uh, you know, segueing one into the other. Uh, said, I'll, what I do, what I'll do, just like I did with the planets. The planet was, uh, you know, like a mini film for each uh, planet. Now what I can do, regardless of in which direction I go, I'll treat, each movement will cover different aspects of the moon. So we ended up you know, using the two suites, so that, okay, that's uh, six movements. And then I started matching them 
and it ended up being, you know, from the first movement covering my own photography of the moon around the world, just to show the universality of the moon. You know, it's the same moon for everyone, regardless of where you are. Yes, southern hemisphere <laughs> might look like upside down. You know, right, uh, right. but it, you know, so it's it's the same moon. So it's basically emphasizing that is the moon, and 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 also keeps us, you know, grounded. Okay, before going to the moon, let's see. Most of us just experience the moon, hey, from home, from the ground. So that's the the, the first movement. The second movement, uh, again, going back to this historical documents. So it's a chronology of the moon through, you know, the last, you know, 400 years from Galileo's telescopic observations in 1609 to Kennedy's speech about going to the moon. And, that, and so the, the second movement covers those historical documents and then segues into Apollo footage, which again, it's a completely some, something different, right? It's footage shot by the astronauts themselves and it's going to the moon and working on the moon and so on and each how are you able to get that that uh, those those of uh, the films the footage well yeah. Na Na nasa is really nasa is really great at uh making these uh visuals uh available uh think about it this was done with taxpayers mm -hmm. you know money so um, so they're really, really good. All the different NASA centers, you can go and you can download and it could be, you know, for, hey, for, for a project with your kids, for somebody to make art, for somebody to make documentaries. In my case, it's, you know, the science and symphony films. Um, and, and so each movement covers different aspects of the moon and, and the, the overall theme, and, you know, you'll, you see that in like in the second movement with the historical documents, is, is the moon, but not just treating it as, um, you know, as a scientific, you know, object in, in, in space, but as an inspiration to both learn about it, study it, but also uh, create artwork inspired by it. So you see references to, you know, Claire de Lune and of course Van Gogh's paintings and, and just, you know, the beautiful images of the moon on a, on a terrestrial, over a terrestrial landscape. So it's, it's just the moon at the intersection of science and art because again, it, ins it inspires both sides of the brain, right? <laughs> the artistic and the scientific. When, how long does it take you to put a production like this together? So it all depends on if there's original photography involved. Probably that's the, that's the longest, you know, aspect, right? Because you have, to, you have to plan to go to these places. If I'm photographing, let's say I, I want the Milky Way in the shot. Well, that happens during some months because during other months, the Milky Way is there when the sun is also up, you know, there. So, of course, you will not see it. Uh, weather, you might want to avoid some weather pa patterns, how many places you have to visit. So the photography can take, you know, months, if, if not years, you know. Uh, but so that's the good thing about always shooting, because then if you go and cover one of these topics, it's not just starting from scratch, but it's like, okay, what do I have that I can, that I can use? And then the other aspects are, you know, research, just, you know, downloading things from, from NASA and other sources. And then finally, once I have everything and I don't start editing until I think I, I have all the material that I'll need. And that's because I don't do, I don't do store storyboarding. 
I don't know. I might have ideas of what's going to go where. But once I start editing, it goes in a very linear way. And, and what I do is I listen to the music. I make marks uh, on the timeline of what's happening and when. And do I think that this is music, you know, uh, it denotes, you know, tension or, you know, it's, it's joyous. Or, and, and, and also I thinking, does this, uh, do I, you know, do, does it evoke, uh, which kind of emotion does it evoke? Does it invoke something uh, that it's moving perhaps in a, in, a, in a circular motion? I mean, to that degree. And that's how then, that, that, that's how I take the visuals and I, I give them that treatment and it's all based on what, you know, it's trying to like visualize the music, right? So then that's emotional. Yeah, it's absolutely emotional. And that's what I that's what I like about it, that it's not, you know, when, for example, you take video and the cool neat thing about video, time lapse photography, many of the things that, you know, you don't have motion that you're already used to see at a particular rate. For example, people walking. You know how fast people walk or how people talking and so on. But things in nature, you're basically, it's a lot of time lapse, you're compressing them in time, or you're, maybe you're slowing it down, right, if it's uh, slow motion photography. So that makes the, uh, the, the, the visuals very fluid, and you can compress them or stretch them, you can mold them to fit the music. Now, there's no scientific formula that tells you, you know, or mathematical formula that tells you, hey, it... It's just completely subjective. So what I do is I render it, I play it back, and I'm like, ah, I think it's moving too fast. But again, there's no, I mean, no right or wrong. It's just what I feel, and I edit, and I, you know, I re-edit and re-render and re-render until I think that, oh, yeah, I think that now it's going with the music. Um, so anyway, so that's the process that comes at the end, bringing all these visuals together. And very, 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 very important to me, not, I'm not showing things in a random way. There is a visual storyline. So if we start from here, we're going to go through here, and we're going to end up here, and it's not showing things at random. Because, I mean, that could be artwork in itself. You know, it could be you're just showing things and stimulating the brain, and, you know, that nothing wrong with that. But my films are very kind of telling a story without words, just with the, uh, with the visuals and, of course, with the music. Well, you know, when I saw that the... Uh, the that the Hudson Valley Philharmonic was going to be doing a program about the moon, the first thing I think about is a documentary. But this is, this is not a documentary. This is a piece of visual art. Exactly. Yes, and I, it's funny that you say that because that was the, the f first description that I did of the planets. Those were my, those were my words. Uh, and I'm sure they're, they're somewhere. It says, you know, the films are not intended to be seen as a documentary, right. but, as a, but as a work, work of, of art. art. So it's based... Neat thing is that it's it's science based, but it's it's artwork exactly. Uh, I add some some labels to tell you know the audience what they're what they're seeing, and uh, and again I'm very even about those I'm very very careful because I don't want to over populate the piece with a lot of labels. If you're gonna be reading something, you might be missing something else on screen, right? So it's that. Uh, it's balancing. Right? Yeah, it's balancing. And it's, it's really sometimes I wish I could tell them what it is. But visually, maybe there's no space on screen. Uh, and again, if I, maybe something that happens quickly, if I just, you know, 
show it. They're going to be reading. If you're reading, you know, you're going to be missing something else. So what we, and, and the way to, you know, counteract that is by having pre-concert lectures, uh, uh, oftentimes, I introduce a piece from from stage, so I show stills about what people are going to see. It's all about uh, putting the film in context, so the audience know. And you know, it, it worried me at the beginning that maybe I thought, you know, how sometimes you have too many talking people, and you know, and you have to thank the sponsor. So all this is important stuff, right? right? But do they want to hear yet somebody else? Oh, you know, just show us the film and we want to hear the music. And, and the reaction is the opposite. Like people have literally told me, thank you so much for coming on stage and, and talking about the film because then it put things in, in perspective. And, and yes, like you well said, it's not meant to be seen as a documentary, but as, a, as an art piece that will in, hopefully inspire them to learn more about what they've seen on screen. So the, it could be like, oh wow, the moon, I didn't know. Like for example, here there's this, um, you'll see great images of a, of a spacecraft called Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, that it's been you know, orbiting the moon for, for many years and taking really high resolution images to the point that it has photographed the things left by the Apollo astronauts on the surface and you're gonna see that on the film. So. I'm sure a lot of people don't know about, you know, this NASA you mean the space garbage that's up there. Yes, yes, I know. That's another that's another big issue. So LRO and they, you know, now all they have to do is hey, Google NASA LRO and take a, enjoy those images, you know, at home and learn more about what the spacecraft, you know, has has achieved. So, yeah, it's all about inspiration. And this isn't the first time that you've presented this program. It was created, was it 2011 that you first did Moonrise? Yes, 2011. I always get confused about 2011 or 2010, but yeah, 2011. Does it, get, does it change over time? Do you look at the piece and say, okay, I'm going to update it, or now that there's been more advances or more photographs? It, it, it has happened with, uh, with the planets, which I actually have to revisit because so many new things have been discovered about these uh, planets. Um, with the, with the moon, especially for now we're celebrating the 50th anniversary, right. it has been a lot of, you know, it's like, you know, retouching. Okay. Retouching. For example, the photography. So the photography, I processed my own photography, what, you know, almost 10 years ago. And now not only have I gotten better at processing Im images, but the software is also better. So... Most of the photography has been, you know, uh, it's like the remastered, you know, there version you of the of the film, and and things that, you know, there's a spacecraft that's doing something, and I'm imaging, I'm, I'm fading the image, and I always thought that's going a little bit too fast. <laughs> so I'm always, you know, the perfectionist Tinkering in me, it. and I'm like, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna re, I'm gonna tweak that, and it's gonna do this instead. So it's just minor minor touch-ups, but. With other works, the intention is to keep them fresh with new material while not sacrificing uh, the overall style of the film. Because, of course, I could start from scratch and do something completely different. But in the case of The Planets, it has been so successful that obviously something worked very well the first time around. So it's just a matter of swapping, hey, now we have a great, better image for this you know, or this visual, but keeping its its own overall integrity. style. Yes, exactly, and its integrity. Now, when you when you work on these uh, projects at your home, 
or in your lab or wherever you work on them. Um, you obviously pick a certain work. Let's say you're doing the Ravel's, mm -hmm. uh, the Ravel piece for Moonrise. You're picking it played by a specific orchestra. That's a recording, I would assume. Yes. Have you ever had a situation where you you have this timed um, and synchronized to a specific work, and then you go to the orchestra and it doesn't it doesn't sync? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. So, yeah, it happened. It happened at some point that um, the conductor was doing things in an unconventional way, right? And and you know, and I and I wish that the um, the conductors early on would verbalize that in a better way. Tell me, like, oh, you know, so some were a little bit you know grumpy because oh we're. And it wasn't just that they were following the film. It's just that they were following somebody else's interpretation that was right. really, like, you know, unconventional. So once I learned that, that somebody actually... And you know what? I think it might have been uh, Keith Lockhart uh, mm -hmm. with Boston Pops. Like, in a very n nice way. It's like, oh, you know, he's doing this instead of doing that, which I find it odd. So, but he wasn't complaining at all. He was like, so I'm doing that. I'm like... Oh, I see what. So then, what I've done in those cases is that I I found another recording that was more you know conventional, and then re you know re-edited. Re-edited for just yeah, for that particular just, conductor. Just for that, right? Just for that. And then, um, and 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 just now, not with this concert, but in the in the next uh, few months, we're going to start using now uh, regularly a technology where you have a musician either on stage or off stage following the conductor and following the score. And what he's basically doing is he's speeding up or slowing down a movie of the score, which is tight. It's, it, it's linked to the film itself. So when he changes the speed of the score, he's changing the speed of the film. So that will give the conductor the freedom to... Uh, Okay, don't forget, uh, don't mind the film, just do your thing within reason, right? Because we, again, we don't want something so completely different. And then the poor person is just like, you know, <laughs> we're stressing, stressing out, you know, speeding or slowing like crazy. But then a musician will be able to like play the film, right? You know, instead of just me, just because nowadays I've just basically start the film and the conductor follows. Now we'll have a musician actively following the, uh, the conductor. Now, whenever your productions are played, do you appear, or do, do often do you just send them out and no, you, no, because always specifically right, show up at the right. And event. I think it's also us um, treating always. We have treated us as we're. This is not just a commercial endeavor. We're mm -hmm. we're in the business of making the, these films and just sending them so we can make a profit. This is a nonprofit organization about science and arts education. So it, the educational components are very, very important uh, to us. So they're the vehicle. It's not just to show them and entertain and let the orchestra offer something different. Not just that. It's also about reaching out to, audi to the audience and inspire them to learn. It's not only about the science, but you know about the science, especially with young minds. It's about the science. It's about the filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It's about the photography. If you have people coming to the hall because of the astronomy, then maybe that's the opportunity to get them interested in in, in right. classical Ste music and also STEM. Is yeah, so important today. Yes, yeah, STEM exactly. So, and it goes back to. 
taking once the films are uh, once the films are edited we like i said they form the basis of my lectures and we oftentimes visit schools and when i visit the school is it's it's twofold it's not only to tell them about the films and the science but perhaps you know suggest some directions for for the for the kids that hey these are things that you might want to pursue you know you might want to become a photographer a filmmaker a graphic designer a musician a scientist so the lecture is very in a way it's 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 anecdotal because it's not just you know dry way just showing content 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 it's like hey So for this film, I went to, for example, Mauna Kea. And uh, so I went to the top of the, this mountain to do this photography. Now, let me tell you why observatories are there. You know, science is... So, and it also breaks down the, uh, you know, tries to break a little the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the stereotype of, you know, the, uh, the scientist with, scientist, a, lab, right, with, a, with exactly. a lab coat, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a building. You know, there's a lot of, you know, field work or, you know, the observatories are, you know, remote places. So... You know, you can visit them. Granted, now with the internet, you can control a telescope from your kitchen. You know, you can have your computer and, and you can be getting data. But so they learn about, about all these different disciplines. And once the lecture is done, I can see, you know, these kids coming to me and saying like, wow, like this is what spoke to me, right? It's like, wow, yeah, I have always enjoyed photography or I have a camera or I love traveling or, you know, What if I combine this with, I remember a kid, it was like probably in kindergarten. He's like, I dance. So I would like to combine this with music or with that, or with film. So, you know, so that's, that's that. I, I'm my only, um, I would make, it would make me so happy if in, you know, 10, 20 years, somebody comes to me and say like, hey, you visited my school or I went to, you know, one of your concerts and that's what put me on a path to what I'm doing now. Because, you know, in my case, going back to the moon was a book about the moon. My dad had this, it was a golf gas station giveaway of some <laughs> kind. And I just found it. It was kind of like a random thing. And I asked my, ma uh, my mom, what is this book? And she said, oh, that belongs to your dad. It's about the Apollo program. And I opened it. I'm like, wow. I was in third grade. I was like, wow. And that put me on a path right. <laughs> to become an astronomer. So, you know, I can only wish that some kids will say like, hey, you know, I, that was really helpful. Yeah. Did you ever want to be an astronaut? It, it's always been, of course, very interesting, but no, I didn't. Okay. And, and maybe, you know what, when I was a kid, I think I was told, oh, you, your eyesight is bad. You probably will never become, probably that's not an issue nowadays or get, get the corrective surgery. Right. But I think I remember that it's like, oh, sorry, that, you know, I, somebody, I think that was this, some, some, some that was drill on me that. You never I really thought, had, though, I really you never thought you wanted to go up in the space shuttle or do any one of those things or it was just... Uh... I mean, it would be, I would, I would be fantastic. I mean, yeah. I would, you know, if I could, yeah, go back, maybe I could try. But I have to say, I, I mean, and you see the, the, the CVs of the astronauts and you are like, holy, oh, <laughs> it's like it's people with three, four degrees. They, you know, they, <laughs> they, 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 they are their pilots. Right. They have so many hours. These people are like 
overachievers. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot in my life, but it's like, wow, these people, look, they're just a special, special breed. <laughs> and not only that, I mean, to be able to live in such a small, condensed space for such a long period for, of especially time. Especially now, right, with a space station. With a space station, you have to wonder how they do it. You really have to give them credit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But to me, you know, not only because of the... Uh, Okay, obviously, for um, because of the uh, the uh, uh, astronomy side, but also the photography that right, they do. I mean, right. like you know, the time lapse photography, which is the same thing that I'm doing. It's the same thing. The only thing that changes is the, your point of view. But they have these, you know, Nikon cameras. Sometimes now with special, you know, tripods that keep them in in place, so they're not just floating around. And they're doing basically it's the same technique that that I that I specialize in time lapse photography, the northern lights, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, time lapse photography from space. So, you know, the only thing I can do is I mean, I, of course, I enjoy it, uh, and then I and then I and then they form part of my film. So I have used the time lapse photography coming from NASA Houston in, in my film. So I'm. Glad that NASA is so good at Well, you're working with materials. them. Even though you're not up there, it, you're working exactly, with them. That's right. great. Right. Now I have one more question, and sure. this is a question that my son, Ben, who's our engineer, wanted me to ask uh -huh. you. He wanted to know whether you've ever seen any extraterrestrial life. N no, I, I, I haven't. Uh, UFOs, right, Ben? And, and, haven't, <laughs> and, and you know what? Um, and, and for that, you know... All comes razor, right? You see something, uh, and usually the you know the the simplest explanation is 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 the correct one, right? And when it comes to things that people see, it's the opposite of all comes razor. One of the most complex explanations that you can think of is oh there are you know aliens visiting from space and here it is. So I have a beautiful example of something that could easily be perceived as like, wow, what is this? This has to be a spaceship. So uh, just this summer, I was taking time-lapse photography of the night skies, particularly of the Milky Way, from Vieques, which is an island off the coast of Puerto Rico. So taking this beautiful, you know, with the Caribbean Sea, photographing the Milky Way. So I go home start editing the pictures and I see this this dot this you know bright light uh well it's just just look like a star you know uh and it's the motion was so random going in one direction then, then of course it's being sped up because it's time lapse but it's go it's like zigzagging and I'm like this is not a drone this is not um an aircraft this is not a helicopter if you show that to you know, general public, especially the ones that, like the poster says in the X-File, I want to believe, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, there it is. So I'm like, wow, this is really odd. I have never seen something like that. Well, guess what? With some digging, it, it's a balloon that belongs to Google. So they, <laughs> they launch it from Puerto Rico, and what they do is they provide L LTE you know, uh, uh, bandwidth connectivity to people that don't have access to the internet. I don't know why are they, they are in the, in the Caribbean. They're way south of Puerto Rico. And I don't know if it's more, it's probably more experimental. Uh, it's called Loon. And you can, they have a Wikipedia article, Google Loon. 
and and that's what it is. So it was uh, it's it's reflective. It's very very big, but from miles and miles, you know, hundreds of miles from your point of view, what you see is just a dot. And it was moving in a. It was definitely not what you would ex, you know you would expect you know to be a, a satellite. Satellite they move in a in a certain direction. Airplanes have multiple lights. Nothing like that. So there it is. A, a beautiful <laughs> example of something that you could e- easily conclude erroneously. Must be spectra. And I always said, who are looking more at the night sky? Astronomers. So astronomers, <laughs> they, they they don't see uh, you know little green man or or spacecraft. You know. So, so many things out there that we don't know about. You can say that it's a UFO, right? Because you cannot identify right, it. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's a UFO, yes. It's a UFO. Is it a spa- an alien spacecraft? No. <laughs> but tonight we will be seeing something that everyone knows and everyone recognizes, and that's the moon. That's the moon. And, and up close. Up close. We'll see, you know, craters. We'll see this beautiful, you know, interplay between light and the terrestrial uh, the, the lunar landscape, which, by the way, that's what Galileo saw in 1609. That's how, before that, we thought that the moon was a perfect sphere, like a, you know, polished sphere. I don't know how, why, how exactly they explain the, uh, the, the seas of lava, right? Because you can see them with right. the naked eye, right. right? I don't know what they thought that was, but they thought it was like completely round. And with his little telescope you know in in 1609 he saw valleys and mountains he was the first one to see that now you take that to the extreme we'll see incredibly detailed images from this LRO spacecraft of you know the peaks on the on the on the crater you know when you have an impact crater in the in the center you get right the peak uh, going up you'll see you'll see that uh, you'll see the the south pole of 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 the moon, where now we know there is there's ice. So it's yes, it's really interesting, and, and that plus all the, all other aspects of the moon, you know, in pop culture and in art, and it's 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 a it's a it's a it, if you like the moon, it's a, okay. it's, it's a beautiful beautiful piece. <laughs> well, it's good for Halloween. I mean, you know, people look at the moon. Especially on Halloween. It is definitely, yes, a common right uh, subject <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in Halloween decorations. And you'll be giving your little narration tonight before we'll, uh, what we'll be doing. Randy and I will have a pre-concert lecture. At what time is that? Uh, one hour before, so at 7. Because right? the concert is at 8, so mm-hmm. at 7. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, chat, uh, we'll chat about the film like, like, we, like we always uh, do before. You know, these, this is our third uh, collaboration. So I'm very happy to be back in Poughkeepsie and hopefully this will not be the last because we have more works <laughs> to show. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Jose, thank you so much for joining us here at Backstage with the Bardavan. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, delightful. Thanks again to Dr. Jose Francisco Salgado and Dougal the Cat for hosting our Backstage with the Bardavan podcast. Backstage with the Bardavan is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website or Facebook page at Backstage with the Bardavan. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time, Backstage with the Bardavan. <laughs>